Spectrum's next. Welcome to Spectrum, the science and technology show on KALX Berkeley, a bi-weekly 30-minute program bringing you interviews featuring Bay Area scientists and technologists, as well as a calendar of local events and news. Good afternoon. I'm Brad Swift, the host of today's show. Rick Karnaski and I interview Spencer Klein and Torsten Stetzelberger about the Neutrino Astronomy Project IceCube. Spencer Klein is a senior scientist and group leader at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. He is a member of the IceCube research team and the Ariana planning group. Torsten Stetzelberger is an electronics engineer at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. He, too, is part of the IceCube project and the Ariana team. They join us today to talk about the IceCube project and how it is helping to better define neutrinos. Spencer Klein and Torsten Stetzelberger, welcome to Spectrum. Thank you. Thank you. Can you talk to us a little bit about neutrinos? Well, neutrinos are subatomic particles, which are notable because they barely interact at all. In fact, most of them can go through the Earth without interacting. This makes them an interesting subject for astrophysics because you can use them to probe places like the interior of stars, where otherwise nothing else can get out. And are most of the neutrinos from those sources? There's a wide range of neutrino energies that are studied. Some of the lowest energy neutrinos are solar neutrinos, which come from the interior of our sun. As you move up to higher energies, they come from different sources. We think a lot of the more energetic ones come from supernovas, which is when stars explode. They will produce an initial burst of neutrinos of moderate energy, and then over the next thousand years or so, they will produce higher energy neutrinos as eject spans, producing a cloud filled with shock fronts. And you're particularly interested in those high-energy neutrinos? Yes. IceCube is designed to study those neutrinos and also neutrinos from even more energetic neutrinos where we don't really know where they come from. There are two theories. One is that they come from objects called active galactic nuclei. These are galaxies which have a supermassive black hole at their center, and they're ejecting a jet of particles perpendicular along their axis. And this jet is believed to also be a site to accelerate protons and other cosmic rays to very high energies. The other possible source of ultra-high-energy neutrinos are gamma-ray bursts, which are when two black holes collide or a black hole collides with a neutron star. Mm. And if the neutrinos don't interact uh, or interact so rarely and weakly with matter, how do we actually detect them? Well, the simple answer is you need a very large detector. Ice cube is one cubic kilometer in volume. And that's big enough that we think we should be able to detect neutrinos from these astrophysical sources. The other project we work on, Ariana, is even bigger. It's proposed, but it's proposed to have about 100 cubic kilometers of volume. Hmm. And so you have an enormous detector to detect a few events. And once you detect them, how can you tell where they came from? Well, with IceCube, we can get the incoming direction of the neutrinos to within about a degree So what we do is we look for neutrinos, 
most of what we see out of these background atmospheric neutrinos, which are produced when cosmic rays interact in the Earth's atmosphere. But on top of that, we look for a cluster of neutrinos coming from a specific direction. That would be a clear sign of a neutrino source, which would be, you know, and then we can look in that direction and see what interesting sources lie that way. We can also look for extremely energetic neutrinos, which are unlikely to be these atmospheric neutrinos. And how is it that you measure that energy? What happens is a neutrino will come in and occasionally interact in the Antarctic ice. I should mention that Ice Cube is located at the South Pole, where there's 2,800 of meters of ice on top of the rock below. Occasionally, a neutrino will come in and interact in the ice. And if it's something called a type of neutrino called a muon neutrino, most of its energy will go into a subatomic particle called a muon. Muon is interesting because it's electrically charged. As it goes through the ice, it will give off light, something we call Cherenkov radiation. So we've instrumented this cubic kilometer of ice with over 5,000 optical modules, which are basically optical sensors. And so we record the amount and arrival times of the light at these optical sensors, and from that we can determine the neutrino direction to about within a degree, and we can also get an estimate of the energy. Um, essentially, if the muon is more energetic, it will also produce other electrically charged particles as it travels. Those will give off more light, and so the light output is proportional to the neutrino energy. So you're taking advantage of the fact that there's a lot of ice in Antarctica and also that it's very big. Are there other reasons to do it at the South Pole? Well, the other critical component about the ice is that it has to be very clear. It shouldn't scatter light and it shouldn't absorb light. And in fact, the light can travel up to 200 meters through the ice before being absorbed. This is important because that means we can have a relatively sparse array. You know, we have only 5,000 sensors spread over a cubic kilometer. That's only possible if the light can travel long distances through the ice. And do you have to take into account that the ice in the Antarctic is not perfectly clean? Yes. When we reconstruct the neutrino directions, we use this sophisticated maximum likelihood fitter. Essentially, we try all sorts of different muon directions and see which one is the most likely. And that takes into account the optical properties of the ice and includes how they vary with depth. There are some dust layers in the ice where the absorption length is much shorter and some places, well, most of the ice where it's much better. Our guests on Spectrum today are Spencer Klein and Torsten Stutzelberger from Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. They are part of a physics project named Ice Cube. In the next segment, they talk about working at the South Pole. This is KALX Berkeley. Can you compare the two experiments, both IceCube and Ariana, a little bit? Well, IceCube is designed for sort of moderate energy neutrinos, but for the really energetic neutrinos, are they are rare enough so that a one cubic kilometer detector just isn't big enough. And so for that, you need something bigger, and it's hard to imagine how you could scale the optical techniques that IceCube uses to larger detectors. So that's why we looked for a new technique and. Here I should say we, it's the royal we, there are many people, many places in the world looking at different versions. And so what we've chosen is looking for radio Cherenkov emission. You know, we have this interaction in the ice. Some of the time, if it's an electron neutrino, it produces a compact shower of particles. That shower will have more negatively charged particles than positively charged. And so it will emit radio waves you know, at frequencies up to about a gigahertz coherently 
which means that the radio emission strength depends on the square of the neutrino energies. So when you go to very high neutrino energies, this is a preferred technique. Radio waves can travel between 300 meters and a kilometer in the ice, which means you can get by with a much sparser array, so you can instrument 100 cubic kilometers with a reasonable number of detectors. When Arion is developed, it will be to access higher energies. Will it still right. de- detect some of the moderately high energies that IceCube is currently reaching? No. It, it There's just, no overlap. Because of this coherence, it's right. just not sensitive. I mean, IceCube will occasionally see these much higher energy neutrinos, but it's just not big enough to see very many of them. Uh, you commented on, or you mentioned the size of the collaboration. Can you sort of speak about how big these projects are? Sure. IceCube has got about 250 scientists in it from the U.S., Europe, Barbados, Japan, and New Zealand. Oh, yeah, we, and plus one person from Australia now. And that's a well-established, you know, it's a large experiment. Ariana is just getting going. It's got, I'll say, less than a dozen people in it, mostly from UC Irvine and some involvement from LBL. How many years have you had experience with your sensors in the field? That's kind of a complicated question in that the idea of doing neutrino astronomy in the Antarctic ice has been around for more than 20 years. The first efforts to actually put sensors in the ice were in the early 1990s. These used very simple sensors. which just had a photomultiplier tube, essentially a very sensitive optical detector, and they sent their signals to the surface. There were no complicated electronics in the ice. The first Amanda effort, in fact, failed because the sensors were near the surface where the light was scattering very rapidly. Turns out the upper kilometer of ice is filled with little air bubbles, but then as you go down in depth, there's enough pressure to squeeze these bubbles out of existence, and so you go from very cloudy ice, like what you see if you look in the center of an ice cube, and then you go deeper and you end up with this incredibly clear ice. So the first efforts were in this cloudy ice. Then in the second half of the 1990s, Amanda was deployed in the deep ice. This is much smaller than Ice Cube in many respects, a predecessor. Of course, the problem with Amanda was this transmission to the surface. It worked, but it was very, very touchy, and it wasn't something you could scale to the Ice Cube size. So a number of people got together and came up with these digital optical modules where all of the digitizing electronics is actually in the module. We also made a lot of other changes and improvements to come up with a detector would be really robust. And then we deployed the first ice cube string in 2005 and continued, and then the last string was deployed at the end of 2010. So basically, from the scientific point or the engineering point of view, learning about a detector, we got data from the first string. It was not very useful for big neutrino science, but you can learn to understand the detector, learn how the electronics behaves, if there is a problem, change code to get different data. When we did see some neutrinos in that run, um, this was one beautiful event where we saw this muon from a neutrino just moving straight up the string. I think it hit 51 out of the 60 optical sensors, so we were basically tracking it for 800 meters. It was just a beautiful event. What is the life like down there, the food, the day-to-day? We've never been there in the winter time, so I can only talk about the summer. And in the summer, you're there for something specific, like drilling or deploying. Uh, so the summertime keeps you pretty busy, and you do your stuff. And uh, then afterwards, you hang out a little bit to wind down and 
sometimes with some folks playing pool or ping pong or watching movies or just reading something, and then time again for the sleep, sleeping and uh, next day. For drilling, for example, we had three shifts, and so that kept you pretty, pretty busy. One season when I was drilling there, I was on what we call the graveyard shift, starting from 11 to, uh, I think, 8 in the morning or so. And, yeah, it was daylight. You don't notice it, except you always get dinner for breakfast and uh, scrambled eggs and uh, potatoes for dinner. The new station at the South Pole is really very nice and I would say quite comfortable. Good recreational facilities. I mean, and I would say the food was excellent, really quite impressive. And do you get to hang out with a bunch of international scientists that are down there? How collegial is it? It depends a little bit on the work. Like when I was drilling on night shift, uh, we mostly got to hang out with uh, people running the station. That was fairly collegial. There's actually not very many scientists at the South Pole. In the summer, there were about 250 people there, and maybe 20 of them were scientists. Most of them were people dealing with logistics. These are people, you know, heavy equipment operators, fuelies would get the fuel off of the plane, cooks, people even were then building the station. It wasn't quite done yet. The drillers, a wide variety of occupations, but not all that many scientists. How close are the experiments to the station? There are quite a few experiments based in the station. Ice Cube is, uh, what's it? kilometer away about it's probably a kilometer and a half to the to the ice cube lab which is where the surface electronics is located mm. so everything is pretty close walking distance cold walk but <clears throat> it depends mm. i mean i don't mind the cold so it was a nice walk but they have uh, like for ice cube uh drilling where like lunch break or so it's a little bit far to walk a kilometer out or even further depending where you drill so we had a car to drive back and forth to the station to eat lunch. Otherwise, you're out for too long. Yeah, they give you really good equipment. And so it's amazing how blasé you can be about walking around when it's 40 below outside. Uh, especially if you do physical work outside as part of drilling or so. It's amazing how much of that cold weather gear you actually take off because you just you do stuff and you warm up. You are listening to Spectrum on KALX Berkeley. Coming up, our guests, Spencer Klein and Torsten Stutzelberger, detail the Ice Cube data analysis process. The ongoing maintenance of Ice Cube, is there a plan for its lifetime? For the stuff in the ice, it's really hard to replace that. You cannot easily drill down and take them out. They are plans uh, to keep the surface electronics, especially the computers, update them as lower power hardware becomes available. Otherwise, uh, I'm not aware of preventive maintenance you could do like on a car. Yeah, I have to say the engineers did a great job on IceCube. About 98% of the optical modules are working. Most of the failures were infant mortality. They did not survive the deployment. And we've only had a handful of optical modules fail after deployment, and all the evidence is we'll be able to keep running it as long as it's interesting. And is there a point at which it's no longer interesting in terms of how many sensors are still active? 
I think we'll reach the point where the data is less interesting before we run out of sensors. Oh, okay. You know, we might be losing one or two sensors a year. In fact, we're still at the point where, due to various software improvements, including in the firmware in the optical modules, each year's run has more sensors than the previous year's. Even if we only had 90% of them working, that would be plenty, and, you know, that's probably 100 years from now. When we had a guest on to speak about the uh, LHC at CERN, they were talking about the gigantic amounts of data they generate and how surprisingly long it takes for scientists to analyze that data to actually get a hold Mm -hmm. of data from the detector. And you're generating very large amounts of data. And furthermore, it's in Antarctica. So how much turnaround time is there? Well, Antarctica doesn't add very much time. We typically get data in the north within a few days or a week after it's taken. There is a bit of a lag and takes us time to understand how to analyze the data. For example, now we're working on, for the most part, the data that was taken in 2010 and, you know, hope to have that out soon, probably for summer conferences. But understanding how to best analyze the data is not trivial. For example, this measurement of the muon energies very dependent on a lot of assumptions about the ice. And so we have ways to do it now, but we're far from the optimal method. And keep in mind, the detector build is just finished. So before, you always added a little bit more, so each year the data looked different because mm-hmm. you got more sensors in the data. Mm. I should say for things where turnaround is important, for example, you mentioned these gamma ray bursters where which happens when a bunch of satellites see a burst of X-rays or gamma rays coming from somewhere in the sky. They can tell us when it happened and give us an estimate of the direction. We can have analyses in, I would say, not quite real time, but you know that we could have turnaround of a couple of weeks. We also measure the rates in each of the detectors. This is a way to look for low-energy neutrinos from a supernova. That is essentially done in real time. If the detector sees an increase, then somebody will get an email alert essentially immediately. If we got one that looked like a supernova, we could turn that around very quickly. So are the algorithms that you're using for this longer-term analysis improving? Yes. They're much more sophisticated than they were two years ago. I'd say we're gradually approaching an asymptotic set of algorithms, but we're still quite a ways to go. We're still learning a lot of things. You know, this is very different from any other experiment that's been done. Normally, experiments at the LHC, if they are tracking a charged particle, they measure points along the track. In our case, the light is emitted at the Cherenkov angle at about 41 degrees. So the data points we see are anywhere from a few meters to 100 meters from the track. And because of the scattering of light, it's not so obvious how to find the optimum track. And it's, you know, it's very dependent on a lot of assumptions, and we're still working on that. And we have methods that work well. As I said, you know, we can get an angular resolution of better than a degree in some cases, but there's still probably some room to be gotten there. And then also, I mean, I'm not involved in the science, but I hear people have new ideas how to look at the data, so mm-hmm. that's still evolving too. Yeah. Like, you know, one analysis that people are working on but we don't have yet would be a speculative search where you're looking for a pair of events, a pair of muons going upward through the detector in the same direction at the same time, which would quite possibly be a signal of some sort of new physics. And it's certainly an interesting topology to look for, but we're not there yet. 
And are there different teams looking at the same data to try to find different results and you know, broaden the search, so to speak? Uh, yes, we have seven or eight different physics working groups, and each of those groups is concentrating on a different type of physics or a different class of physics. For example, one group is looking for point sources, so, you know, hot spots in the sky. Second group is looking at atmospheric and diffuse neutrinos, trying to measure the energy spectrum of the neutrinos we do see, both the atmospheric and also looking for an additional component. There's a group doing cosmic ray physics. There's a group looking for exotic physics. These are things like these pairs of upward-going particles. They're also looking for other oddities, such as magnetic monopoles. There's a group that's looking for neutrinos that might be produced from weakly interacting massive particles, i.e. dark matter. There's a group that's monitoring the rates of the detector. This um, scalar is looking for supernova. And, oh, there's also a group looking for tau neutrinos, which is the, this very distinctive topology. Tau neutrinos are sort of the third flavor of neutrinos, and those are mostly only produced by extraterrestrial sources. And they look very distinctive. We would look for a case where you see two clusters of energy in the detector separated by a few hundred meters. Looking at what's next, what would be the sort of ideal laboratory? If you want something that's very big, obviously Antarctica is a great challenge. Can you do neutrino detection in space, for instance? Mm, that's an interesting question. There are people who are talking about that. The main application is trying to look for these cosmic ray air showers. The best experiments to study high-energy cosmic ray air showers are these things called air shower arrays, which are an array of detectors. Um, the largest one is something called the Auger Observatory in Argentina. It covers about 3,000 square kilometers with an array of detectors on kind of a one-and-a-half-kilometer grid. And that's about as large a surface detector as you could imagine building. The alternative technology is to look for something called air fluorescence. When these showers go through the air, they light it up, particularly the nitrogen is excited, and it acts kind of like a fluorescent tube. So you see this burst of light as the shower travels through the atmosphere. Auger, in addition to these surface detectors, has these cameras called flies eyes that look for this fluorescence, but it's limited in scale. People have proposed building experiments that would sit on satellites or a space station and look down and look at these showers from above. They could cover a much larger area. They could also look for showers from upward-going particles, i.e. neutrino interactions. But at this point, that's all pretty speculative. And when's your next trip to Antarctica? Uh, that's all depending on funding. I would like to go again, and hopefully soon. I think I'm cautiously optimistic we'll be able to go again this year. Mm. Spencer and Dorsten, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. A regular feature of Spectrum is to mention a few of the science and technology events that are happening locally over the next few weeks. Lisa Katowicz joins me for the calendar. The August General Meeting of the East Bay Astronomical Society is Saturday, July 14th at the Chabot Space and Science Center's Dellums Building, 10,000 Skyline Boulevard in Oakland. Ezra Barani is the evening's speaker. The title of his talk is UFOs, The Proof, The Physics, and Why They're Here. The meeting starts at 7.30 p.m.
Join Nobel laureates and social and environmental justice advocates at the Towns and Tagor third annual seminar for science and technology on behalf of the peoples of Bengal and the Himalayan basins. The subject: the global water crisis, prevention and solution. Saturday, July twenty-first, one thirty p.m. to seven thirty p.m. The event is jointly sponsored by UC Berkeley's Department of Public Health and the International Institute of the Bengal and Himalayan Basins. Guest speakers include three Nobel laureates: Charles H. Towns, Burton Richter, and Douglas Asheroff. Also presenting are Francis Towns, advocate for social justice, Dr. Rash Ghosh, and Sterling Bunnell. The event will be held in 145 Dwinell Hall on the UC Berkeley campus. That's Saturday, July twenty-first, one thirty p.m. to seven thirty p.m. For more details, contact the UC Berkeley School of Public Health. The next Science at Cal lecture is on July twenty-first. The talk will be given by Dr. Jeffrey Silverman, and is entitled "Exploding Stars, Dark Energy, and the Runaway Universe." Dr. Silverman has been a guest on Spectrum. His research has been in the study of supernovae. His lecture will focus on how the study of supernovae led to the recent discovery that the universe is expanding, likely due to a repulsive and mysterious dark energy. It was these observations that were recently awarded the 2011 Nobel Prize in Physics. The lecture is July 21st at 11 a.m. in the Genetics and Plant Biology Building, Room 100. Next, two news stories. Three thousand species of mosquitoes are responsible for malaria, dengue fever, yellow fever, West Nile virus, encephalitis, and many more diseases. In Burkina Faso alone, residents can expect two hundred bites a day. Rapid resistance to pesticides on the part of malaria mosquitoes has prompted researchers all over the globe to deploy novel strategies against this and other diseases. Targeting dengue fever has an advantage over malaria, as only one species, Aedes aegypti, is responsible for spreading it, versus the twenty species responsible for spreading malaria. A British biotechnology company called Oxitec has developed a method to modify the genetic structure of the male Aedes aegypti mosquito, transforming it into a mutant capable of destroying its own species. In 2010, they announced impressive preliminary results of the first known tests of three million free-flying transgenic mosquitoes, engineered to start a population crash after infiltrating wild, disease-spreading Aedes aegypti swarms on Cayman Island. Oxitec has recently applied to the FDA for approval of its mosquito in the U.S., with Key West under consideration as a future test site. In 2009, Key West suffered its first dengue outbreak in 73 years. Australian researchers are testing a mosquito intended to fight dengue fever by passing the disruptive Wolbachia bacteria to other mosquitoes—a very different approach than transgenic genes. Funded largely by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the project has shown that the Wolbachia strain not only shortens the life of a mosquito but also reduces the amount of virus it develops. Releases in Queensland, Australia, last year showed that Wolbachia could spread through a wild population quickly, and future test sites are under consideration in Vietnam. The UC Berkeley News Center reports a prototype network being installed by chemists at the University of California, Berkeley, will employ 40 sensors spread over a 27 square mile grid. The information the network will provide could be used to monitor local carbon dioxide emissions. To check on the effectiveness of carbon reduction strategies now mandated by the state 
but hard to verify. Built and installed by project leader Professor Ron Cohen and graduate student Virginia Tighe and their lab colleagues, the shoebox-sized sensors will continuously measure carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide, nitrogen dioxide, and ozone levels, as well as temperature, pressure, and humidity. Streaming the information live to the web through the site beacon.berkeley.edu. The sensor network, dubbed Beacon, stretches from the East Bay Regional Parks on the east to Interstate 880 on the west, from El Cerrito on the north, nearly to San Leandro on the south, encompassing open space as well as heavily trafficked areas. Most of the sensors are being mounted on the roofs of local schools in order to get students interested in the connection between carbon dioxide emissions and climate change. The UC Berkeley researchers work with Oakland's Chabot Space and Science Center to create middle school and high school activities using live sensor data streamed through the web as part of the students' energy and climate science curriculum. The Beacon Network is a pilot program funded by the National Science Foundation to determine what information can be learned from a densely spaced network. The music heard during the show is from Lostana David's album "Folk and Acoustic," made available through a Creative Commons license 3.0 attribution. Thank you for listening to Spectrum. If you have comments about the show, please send them to us via email. Our email address is spectrum.kalx at yahoo.com. Join us in two weeks at this same time. <laughs>